Be seated. Our second scripture lesson continues in Genesis 2, picking up in verse 4. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and breathed life's breath into his nostrils. The human being came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit. And also he grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flows from Eden to water the garden and from there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It flows around the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. That land's gold is pure, and the land also has sweet-smelling resins and gemstones. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, flowing east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill of all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep, and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, This one finally is bone for my bones and flesh for my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning, it's the most well-known beginning to the most well-read book of all time. In the beginning... We are brought into a world that is formless, where nothing exists that we read of except for God. And then, in the beginning, God speaks. Another way that phrase, in the beginning, gets translated is when God began to create. And we are reminded right away that this is the story about God. Not just this story of creation, not just Genesis, which means origin or beginning, but literally the whole Bible is the story of God. But we encounter two different stories of beginning. So what do we do with that? And when we come to that and recognize that, we might start to wonder, like, is the Bible true 
And how does that work? And how then do we read it when we encounter two different things like this? Well, the first thing I want us to notice today before we get very far into this and when we start thinking about all the questions that we have when we think about creation is this. The Bible is not a science textbook. Now, you might know that. Like, you might realize that when you read it that there's not chemistry equations in it. If there were, I would not be here teaching you on it. I did not do well in those. Therefore, I stopped all of my chemistry uh, studies soon after middle school. But we want the Bible, a lot of times, to answer all of our questions about the beginning, to answer everything that we bring to it about origin. But here's the problem. These creation accounts are not eyewitnesses. They were penned by the people of ancient Israel a very long time after creation, right? There couldn't have been eyewitnesses when no one else was there besides God. Kind of makes it difficult, right? And so I think a lot of times we, we get taught like, well, someone must have been there on the ground watching it and taking down what happened. But friends, that wasn't the case. That doesn't mean I don't think this is true. I just want you to think from this perspective a little bit to understand how these things came to being. We want all of the answers when we come to Scripture. Kathleen O'Connor, the scholar, she writes it this way. She says, The first creation account of Genesis does not answer questions of modern science. It does not address evolution and the Big Bang theory or present a literal account of the emergence of the cosmos itself. They were instead writing for the people of their time and using their own cultural, religious, and scientific traditions. So friends, the genre of this creation account is in the same genre as other creation stories of the ancient Near East that were around. And we learn significant things about God and how God relates to creation in these stories and also how they differ from other stories around the ancient Near East. I'm not going to go in depth with you about like Sumerian creation stories, but let's just say that they were a lot bloodier and involved a lot more killing uh, than the story of... Of, of the Christian and Jewish God in creation. Just because our modern questions are not answered in these stories does not mean that this story is not true or that the Bible is not true. I want to encourage you at the outset as we, as we read Scripture and as we take this story through week by week throughout this year, I want to encourage you to read the Bible for transformation and not just for information to read for transformation, not just for information. When we use terms about the Bible, like God's instruction book for living, when we refer to scripture, we lessen its impact. Because this book is a living word passed down to us through centuries. And it still speaks to us today every time that we open it. When we read for transformation, we take the Bible then for what it is. In this case, these are stories that the people of Israel had told about the creation of the universe for centuries. They are true. They are just not eyewitness scientific accounts because those did not exist. So let's look then at these two creation accounts and ask this singular question. What do they tell us about God? We'll look into these two creation stories and by faith understand more about who God is is. In this first creation account, the first story, God creates by a word. Nothing 
is happening in the universe that we can see other than within God's very self. And then God speaks. And when God speaks in this story, what he says happens. Let there be light, and there's light, right? What we have here is a poetic narrative. If you hear the cadence and the rhythm, I used to think it was boring when I was young reading this story. I'd be like, it already said that. Why can't it just like, and, and he said it was good, right? And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. But what we actually have is this beautiful poem where every day of creation follows a similar order. God speaks, God then creates, God sees it, God calls it good, and God names whatever the thing is. And the work God does is divided up very, very neatly, very orderly. God can do a lot of work in one week, we learn, like a lot of work. So in days one through three, God creates the cosmic household. He creates the whole structure for being, right? We get light and darkness. We get sea and sky. We get the land and the vegetation on it. Days four to six, God creates the inhabitants to dwell within each of those spots in the household. Let's dig down a little further into it. On day one, God creates the light, right? Separates light from darkness, day from night. And then on day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars, filling up the day and the night. Now, if you want to ask this with modern scientific eyes, you're saying like, well, how does that work? Stars are balls of gas and everything like that. And, you know, how did the light happen without the sun? I don't know. That It doesn't answer those questions. Stop trying to make it, right? Here's the deal. Like, it says that God did it, and somehow God created. That's what we're going to take. I don't know exactly how it happened, but, but here's the deal. God creates light on the, on the first day, and then on the fourth day, we get sun and moon and stars, right? Day two, God creates the sky, separates it from the water. Then on day five, what does God create? Fish to go in the waters and birds to go in the sky, right? There's this correlation between these days. On day three, right, God creates the earth. He he rises up the earth and, and separates the sea from the earth. And then all of a sudden on day six, right, God creates all of the land animals that dwell on the earth, all of the livestock and creepy crawling things, it says, right? And then humanity, finally on day six, still part of that creation. And then to top it all off, to culminate everything, on day seven, God creates the Sabbath. Day seven, the perfect day, the perfect number in Hebrew understanding. God blesses this seventh day and makes it holy. This is a cosmic story to the beginning of God's relationship with Israel. For ultimately, what we get in the entire Old Testament, right, is the story about God's relationship to this people Israel. But the first 11 chapters, we don't get there yet. We don't meet this character, Abraham, who's going to lead us into that until Genesis 12. And so what we get is this prologue to that that begins it all. So we're going to read about the creation. We're going to read about Noah and 
and, and humanity's downfall with Cain and Abel right before that. We're going to get to the Tower of Babel and all of that, all in the first 11 chapters. If you've been tracking with us in the Bible year, like it hasn't been boring for the first four days. We're not there yet. It'll get there, but, but we're not there yet. There's a lot of questions, a lot going on. But it's a reminder that this story is even bigger than Israel. This story is cosmic. And that Israel is God's chosen people from all of the universe. And that God ultimately is the creator of it all. This creation story was written down while the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. They did not have a lot of hope after losing their promised land. Yet they are reminded here of the incredible power of their God who could create something out of nothing. God speaks to create and create something powerful in the lives of these Israelites who are in exile and even in our lives, too. And then we turn the page and we have the second story about creation. If in the first story, God speaks by, God creates by word, in the second story, God creates by deed. In the first story, God's kind of a transcendent being, right? He has the, like, let there be light. I mean, it's like, you know, if... Uh, Oh, who, if like James Earl Jones was the voice of God, right? That's kind of what we think of. Like that's the first, that's the first story. In the second story, God is human-like. He's an artisan while he creates. He's a surgeon taking a rib out of someone and, and making another human. He's a scientist trying to figure out how to find this right partner for the human, right? He will walk in the garden in chapter 3. He has all of these human-like tendencies in in chapter 2. And the focus of this second story is quite different as well. In the first story, humanity was part of the grand creation, one part of the entire ecology, created in God's image, yes, but still a part of the same day as the cattle and the land animals. In the second story, humanity is the focal point. God creates the human being from the dust of the earth. Ha-adam is the word. Adam just means the man. Okay? And he creates it from ha-adama, the ground. It's literally taken right from it. And God breathes the breath of life into the man. This is the differentiating factor between the man and all the other beings God has made. The breath of life. God fashions all of the other animals and beings from the ground here. But only the man has the breath of God. So humans contain both the earth itself and the divine breath. Humans are like all the other creatures and different yet in this one way, the sacredness of the breath of God. And instead of being a grand poem like the first one, this is a story. And like all good stories, this story in Genesis 2 has a problem. The man is alone. God tries to figure this problem out, it tells us, by bringing the animals to him, right? And he has them name the animals. And it's like God's experimenting with how this story is told, right? A helper suitable for the man was not to be found among them. So God creates a woman by taking the rib from Adam and forming her from him. And we learn the basis for marriage and sexuality in this story as well. We also learn that God made work in this passage and that work or calling or vocation is good. 
The world isn't fallen yet, and the man has a job. He is to name all, all of the created things. I find this fascinating. We complain about work, but ultimately we need a reason to get up in the morning. We want to contribute to society and have a purpose. And that, Genesis 2 says, is built into us by God. Kathleen O'Connor writes about this section in this way. She says, The garden expresses ecological, psychological, and spiritual balance so that no part can operate alone or hurt or destroy another part. This vivid web of inner-threaded life stands as God's intention for creation. Chapter 1 doesn't really mention the garden, right? Chapter 2 is where we get like, hey, there's four rivers. Here's kind of the way it works. Uh, and this garden is, is perfect and is made here by God. And God, it says he like puts the man to dwell in him. You almost think of like a, like a he picks him up and puts him there. Like he puts him to dwell in this garden. And this garden is perfect, right? It is, it is how God intended for creation to relate to each other. There's an interdependence woven into the fabric of creation. Man wasn't meant to be alone. Man came from the ground, the same ground that he will till and work, and the same ground that he will ultimately return to. So the Bible is the story of God. And we have these two different stories. And my question is simply, what do they show us about God? The first story, I think, shows us that God is powerful. God can create something out of nothing, simply with a word. How much more can God do that in our lives? The second story reminds us that God is present. God cared about Adam and Eve, gave them the gift of each other and of vocation. These creation accounts take us to an outer space cosmological view of creation, seeing light burst forth from a word. When I read that first chapter, I can't help but imagine how Psalm 19 or other writers felt just praising God for the immensity of God's creation. The same way when you go out in the mountains and you look out at the sky and the stars and you feel like, I'm pretty small, right? Or when you look at the immensity of the ocean and you can't see anything and you start to say, well, God is really big. And then you start to hear stories about how we're part of a galaxy that's many and there's gajillions of galaxies and they're all that far away, right? It like gives you that feeling like God is pretty big. God is powerful. These stories, though, also take us to the intimate space of God fashioning a human being and breathing God's very breath of life into us. That God is that present with us, that, that God knows us that intimately. If Psalm 19 declares to us the majesty and glory of God, Psalm 139 turns around and declares that God knows every hair on your head and that you are thoughtfully and wonderfully made. If from these two accounts we learn that God is both powerful and present, then that's quite a start to the story. In the beginning, God was powerful and present. Thanks be to God. Amen.